What are the possible warning signs of a modern global conflict? And what geopolitical strategy is available to ensure the historical conditions for success? Is conventional warfare possible in the age of nuclear weapons? Do our current and future leaders possess the restraint to enter into partial warfare when it comes to global conflict? Hawks and doves alike, each side gets some things right and some things wrong. We explore in this week's segment, titled The Hawk and Dove's Guide to Spotting World Wars. This is Over and Above. So Mike, this is going to be another episode of the show that we are devoting to geopolitics, which uh, I think is kind of a nice surprise, you know, with the election coming so close. I was worried we'd be stuck talking endlessly about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. But, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for better or for worse, some interesting uh, uh, activity throughout the world has uh, occasioned uh, some thinking on on for both of us on this subject. And uh, I know you asked a, a great question uh, in our in our last segment about geopolitics and, and whether anyone really understands what geopolitics really are in, in foreign policy or whether there's any kind of geopolitical thinking in foreign policy any longer. And uh, I guess we should be should be clear that what we mean by geopolitics is is the type of international relations uh, focus uh, that's influenced by by geography, like who's who's where, and 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 you know what what sort of alliances follow from that. Uh, would you would you say that's an accurate assessment? Yeah, and it it, it brings me back thinking to uh, thinking back to a to a debate, uh, not in this presidential cycle, but the last one in two thousand twelve where I believe the candidates were asked what was the what is the United States biggest geopolitical threat Mm -hmm. or I don't I'm not sure I can't recall if it was actually asked in the debate whether or not President Obama brought up the fact that uh, Mitt Romney had said that the biggest geopolitical threat to the United States was Russia I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia, not Al Qaeda, you Mm -hmm. said Russia. And he made, you know, some sort of joke and burn about it, about how, you know, their 1980s called and they're calling for their foreign policy back. (laughs) And the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because, you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. (laughs) Um, Which, you know, okay, great zinger there, um, Barry, but... Do you even know what geopolitics is? <laughs> um, because geopolitics is not ISIS. Geopolitics is not Al Qaeda. Geopolitics is not some lone wolf um, operating within the United States that the United States has now become so concerned with. I think since two thousand one. No, geopolitics are the are major players doing things where they are and what they're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, if Canada is amassing troops on our border, that's a geopolitical threat to us. Right. Because they're close to us and they can hurt us imminently. Right. Um, Whereas, I guess, if, if ISIS sets up in Canada and starts building a splinter group, it's only accidentally geopolitical. 
right? It's it's not overtly geopolitical, and that it's not you know Canada taking a, a national action against the United States. It's just a sort of a localized threat. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you need a you need a nation state. Um, and you know, ISIS can make the, especially now that they have, I guess, some sort of glob of land in the Middle East that they, mm-hmm. they, they could make the case for being one. Um, but when, when you're talking about geopolitics, you have to be talking about location. Um, and it's not just proximity. I mean, that's not just, that's not the only player involved in geopolitics, but it certainly, I think is one of the biggest. And when you're talking about one of two maybe nation states in the country that actually pose like an existential threat to the United States. Uh, Russia is one of them and they have been now for um, quite a number of years. And I don't, I don't know if people think this way anymore. I don't know if that's like a, a mode of thinking for citizens in the United States of thinking of large players in the world stage, mm-hmm. um, their militaries and what, what that means for you as a nation. Right. I mean, we, we sort of touched on this in last week's show when we were talking about Vladimir Putin and his influence from his uh, abiding interest in Tsar Peter the Great. And I think, you know, where we kind of ended up last week was that that was the type of geopolitical thinking that needs to be happening in foreign policy debates. And you get it. You get it when you pick up foreign affairs, when you pick up international relations journals, when you read what experts are saying about it. These, these people get it. They study it. Uh, Russia is a country. It's a nation. It has a history. It has a kind of collective psyche, if you think about it. There's a very Russian way of doing things. And you can look at that history and sort of ask yourself, what would a nation steeped in this history, steeped in this culture that thinks this way and reasons this way, given their current administration, what would they do? And uh, I think we, we get the, we understand the individual actions of current administrations, but I don't, I think we lose that nuanced extra bit of understanding that Russia has a history. Russian exceptionalism is a real thing, whether it's <clears throat> Peter the Great's imperial Russian exceptionalism, or whether it's the bizarre kind of Russia's the, the headquarters for the, the the Soviet brand around the world or or whether it's this modern sort of bizarre Eurasian concept that Vladimir Putin seems to have. It's all Russian exceptionalism and it, it's all sort of uh, part of the same sui generis, right? The same animal, the Russian animal. Do you think that... Do you think that... Um this lack of geopolitical thinking as a society stems from our advancement in technology at all? If not our t- technology explicitly, that definitely our, our global way of thinking about the world, right? Thinking about the world like an internet, open yeah. to everyone, everyone's communicating. Uh, you sort of lose that concept of nationalism, that concept of being a nation with a shared history. I think it's what what shocked people about the Brexit. You know, how dare a country act like a country, Mm, mm -hmm. right? They seem to be going the opposite way that the world had been trending up until that point, or at least Europe. Right, right. And I I get that the outrage, I should point out, wasn't so much about 
Britain asserting its nationalism. The outrage was about the fact that the campaign for leave in Brexit wasn't about that at all. It was largely about yeah, right. about uh, it's sort of a xenophobic racism thing, and and that should should raise alarms. I, I don't want to be be confused on that point. Yeah, that that is alarming. That that's a problem. But my point is. No one made the case for British nationalism in, in, in popular culture, I don't think. People didn't understand it as something equally important, right? There was just the outrage and the concern over what it would mean for the European Union. But there, I don't feel like there was a, a whole lot of people in the, the public debate saying, well, but nationalism is important. We're a nation, right? Could be off there. Could be off there. No, but I, 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 didn't I think see you're it. right. I, th- I think you're right, and I think um, I, I I do think that our the ability to, to to text someone on the other side of the world plays into this, and your ability to communicate with someone so quickly on the other side of the world, um, kind of it it I think it makes geopolitics seem old fashioned, mm-hmm. right? It makes yeah. it makes someone like Barack Obama who. Um, I mean, his whole campaign was was built on um, new age communication. Absolutely, right? his I mean, yeah. his campaign was revolutionary in that aspect. Um, and to hear someone like Mitt Romney talking about the old way of doing things, I think lent itself to a to a zing there, right? Because you can say this guy's out of touch. He's still thinking like uh, like Bush Senior. You know, this is a, this is this is like a boring co- copycat. Of just a of a statesman who who is doing things that is antiquated. But Governor, you know, when it comes to our foreign policy, you seem to want to import the foreign policies of the 1980s, just like the social policies of the 1950s and the economic policies of the 1920s. Right. But look at the issues today, and I think you'll still find that proximity is key because our. Are Americans as a whole more upset and more worried about Russian ICBMs pointed at our cities, or are we more upset and worried about um, illegal immigration? The latter is true, right? I mean, even if it's only half the population or roughly is actually think that that's a big concern, I still think that's way more uh, than what you're going to get if you ask the country as a whole whether or not they're worried about um, ICBMs pointed at us from across the world. So it would be interesting to see yeah. if you ask that question today, right? What what percentage of people that that would be fascinating? I think yeah. if you ask that question today, well, how many people would say they're actually concerned? I think you're right. I don't think many people would really, you know, be as worried as say terrorism or or illegal immigration or you know any yeah. of these other big issues. So proximity matters. And in that regard, I think you do have to um, put yourself in Russia's shoes and look at the world from their perspective. And they have a lot of threats right on their doorstep that we don't have here. Um, Canada and Mexico are uh, quite friendly to us. Mm -hmm. We don't have massive troop maneuvers on the border that are called exercises. Right, that right. um, the United States likes to conduct all the time, right on the border, right, 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 right on the border of uh, Ukraine or somewhere else, and you know, troop movements. We do it to North Korea all the time too. We'll do fleet movements out in, um, out in the Pacific, right off their coast. 
Um, and we get to do that and we're okay with that over here. But can you imagine if Canada or Mexico had been historically adverse to us? Mm -hmm. Right. So for the, you know, for hundreds of years have been at least, you know, there has been tension there and they're amassing and moving and fortifying their border and moving troops around and sure. um, doing missile exercises and placing long range inter- or short range ballistic missiles on the border. Yep. We would be very upset about that. And um, the public perception would be just entirely different. Like you said, if, how many people are worried about Russian ICBMs? If you ask them today, probably a negligible amount. Right. But if you park those Russian nukes through a Mexican alliance along the border or a Canadian alliance, it doesn't sure. really matter. Or, you know, or if they annex part of Alaska and put them in there. Mm-hmm. Right. And now it changes. Yeah, it does. And what changed was the geopolitical situation. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, so I, it's crazy to think, I think, in, in the modern day, modern era, the age of nuclear weapons, what a, what a, what a, global conventional war would look like uh i mean i guess you would look at you would look at world war ii up until the point where we drop the nuclear bomb is that's kind of like what the you know that's the last big global i mean, sure there's korea vietnam and whatnot but on a global scale that to me is the last big war right that involved conventional warfare Right. We have tanks moving, we have troop mm-hmm. movements, we have, you know, military strategy, you have navies, air force, all of the, all of that existed. Um, how do you predict it, though? How do you how do you spot one of these things coming? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you make a good point that, you know, the the, the concept of a uh, of a world war, I think, is is entirely a product of advanced modernity. Right, it doesn't exist until the 20, 20th century, mm-hmm. um, and as soon as it's invented, right within like what three, four decades, uh, we have two of them back to back, and then technology reaches a certain point where it's just not practical any longer. Um, like you said, in the nuclear age, there's no world wars. We haven't seen any. I guess you could you could call the Cold War sort of a global conflict. Um, uh, albeit a very long protracted one uh, very cold <laughs> it was a cold war <laughs> it was <laughs> the aptly named but it wasn't uh, but it wasn't total war but it wasn't because, total war yeah because excellent. total war now i mean total war now means death right for every i mean it means th- extinction it, it means extinction right because you look at total war and that would be a hundred percent of your capacity yeah. for war is being implemented right and and that would be nuclear weapons. Right. <laughs> right. And it, so in a strange in a strange way, for as crazy as it is, the, the policy of mutually assured destruction is, in, in a way, in this bizarre paradox, the greatest peacekeeping force of the latter 20th and early 21st century. Because if you think about it, every conflict after we drop the bombs in Japan onward is not between great powers, right? It's between right. either small second or third world countries or non-nuclear first world countries kind of going at it in little territories yep or it's global players making a, a sort of alliances or or uh, what what would be a more modern term for this coalition maybe yes. like these coalition forces going in and kicking the crap out of some dictator right. 
or you know or you know vietnam was supposed to be a police action it's against uh you know the Viet Cong, which they're not a nuclear force no, right no uh, even even your Saddam Hussein, for, for as much as we thought he had weapons of mass destruction, that war wasn't about two nuclear powers going at it. That was about stopping someone from entering the nuclear club, right? And once right. you're in the nuclear club, the understanding is you don't wage total war anymore. That's why it has to be exclusive, because it has to be the group of people who get that. But when we talk about changes in technology, I don't know the mutually assured destruction threat alone can keep a World War III from happening forever. I think eventually technology will change and warfare will change. And we should always treat it as a possibility, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of things besides nukes. And when you look at military technology, especially with, you know, we, we talk about President Obama, Obama's legacy, I think, in terms of military action is going to be the drone. He's used the drone like no other president in the past now granted that is a, a con uh, that is entirely a consequence of of the historical position that he occupies right it's the technology that, that boomed while he was in office sure and he had it readily available but look what he did with it by 2012 he'd killed some 1600 people in pakistan alone with upwards of 250 drone strikes yeah this is he, just in his first term this is in his first term, right? Yeah. This is you know when we're talking about when he's debating with Mitt Romney about what the great geopolitical threat is, you know he's using this this drone to seek out uh, terrorists, and he's he's also making some very interesting uh, definitions in terms of of how warfare is fought. Uh, consider this: this is what changes during the Obama administration. He first off, he gets lots of criticism for killing multiple American citizens who were living abroad with drones because of their supposed relation to terrorist activities. He expanded the definition of the war on terrorism to assert uh, this sort of power to identify and detain anyone deemed as a terrorist. So taking it sort of a step further than Bush did, um, while at the same time talking about closing Guantanamo. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Like I said, these are the two sides of Obama. And, you know, and politics aside, this, this identifies him squarely as the modern hawk, right? He's, he is the right. modern American foreign policy hawk. He, uh, and, you know, don't forget the Middle East. He used drones in Somalia. He was fighting pirates with drones. He, uh, you know, to say nothing of, of, you know, military endeavors in Latin America, uh, expansion of the drone war into Yemen. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Uh, just because he's not using grand military maneuvers with lots of troops, although he is using, he has used troops quite, quite a bit. Um, this is this is Obama's style of war, the light footprint, low cost war. And if that catches on, I think you could have a global conflict that would be terrifying in how much destruction you could implement at such little cost to yourself. And that changes the type of calculation that's going to be made when the geopolitical game is being played, right? It's like trying to play chess and suddenly one player changed the rules, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and now everybody's doing it. And it's that less predictable, right? Yeah. I mean, you see that happen uh, at different stages in, in, in warfare, um, I think the like the last big leap. Well, I guess the last big leap was was nuclear weapons, and then sure, p- 
prior to that last big leap would be mechanized warfare with tanks, um, machine guns. Right. Or um, naval and air warfare. Naval and air force. Right. So in... And I think when you, when you see that happen in history, you, you, you get the point of, uh, okay, we have to figure out how to use these things now and how to, how do we, how do we combat against them? And that, that just leads to a whole, you know, it's just a spitball of more technology that's developed to counter it and more and more deadly and more deadly and more deadly. Um, and it's, in, when you say less costly, I think it's fair to say that it's less costly, not just economically, but politically, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Obama now gets to not have the flack that Bush did right. um, for, you know, expending American lives, right? Because now we're, um, now we're using drones and it's easier. It becomes easier uh, to go to war if you don't have to deal with, you know, with putting troops in harm's way. Not only the flip side of that is he gets all the glory too. Mm-hmm. He gets all the glory without the cost. So he, sure. he he gets to continue to defend against terrorism. He gets to go out and, and root out the Osama bin Ladens. He gets results. Um, so you kind of have to ask yourself with this new fasted, loosed, easy technology, what, and this is a geopolitical question. This is what I, I think we're getting at, that people aren't asking these types of questions. But when you take that technology out of the context of the American exceptionalism and you put it into the context of Chinese exceptionalism or Russian exceptionalism, which exist, they have histories just yes. like our own concept of American exceptionalism. What does that look like when you take that technology, that that means, and you apply it to different motives? Uh, that's a geopolitical question. It worries me. It worried me in 2012 when you know Obama had that famous back and forth with Romney that he didn't seem to get it. And I, th- I think he does. I don't think Obama's not a smart guy. I think he's a very smart guy. Um, and I think, you know, that debate, to be fair, that, that was more about getting a burn on TV to win a debate than it was about a serious yes. geop- yeah. geopolitical um, debate. But, you know, it, it seems strange, though, that his focus is elsewhere. His focus is on, on using the new toys, right, as opposed to what other people will do with the toys. And that's always a bad sign because <laughs> if we're going to talk about, if we're going to segue into what are the warning signs of a world mm. war, the first one I think of is an arms race. It's some new technology comes out and everyone's rushing to get their hands on it. It yeah, was I mean, navies in World War One. Navies. Um, then you have the Air Force. Uh, yeah. And you have tanks. tanks. Um, missiles. Um, yep. And what outer happens? space. Like, outer space, sure. I mean, World um, War II, Hitler gets his hands on a whole bunch of tanks. And what does he do with it? He, he mows over a bunch of people on horseback. <laughs> you know, Japan makes a, a sizable Navy and Air Force. Mm-hmm. What do they do? I mean, they apply those technologies to their respective German and Japanese exceptionalisms. Now, just because they had their exceptionalisms kicked out of them, you know, the Allies <laughs> literally beat it out of them. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist anymore in any other countries. And I think sure. that's probably, you know, what we're getting at here is that there's a tendency of the United States to think that there's only American exceptionalism, which is tragically short-sighted. But what, what else do you think, Michael? What, what do you think are the other warning signs of a world so, war? So when I look at a few of the world wars, um, World War One, the war to end all wars, supposedly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> we all know that that's, uh, that's never going to be true. I mean, well, maybe it will be at some point. And maybe. I, that's going to be a wonderful day for human civilization if we make it there. 
<laughs> not to right. sound too, uh, um, you know, depressing, but if the war to end all wars yeah. isn't actually an extinction event yeah. <laughs> there's no one left to fight so that, that's uh, the one that did it and there's nothing you can do but laugh at this people yeah, you right, know yeah, like yes. you, you kind of have to chuckle because what else you <laughs> we're talking about extinction here you know, so right yeah um These but world war one was born <laughs> world war one was born not out of some um you know some some crazed person invading mm. all of europe wanting to you know uh, extinguish groups of populations from the from the planet. Um, mm-hmm. This is born out of uh, one nation trying to protect itself when one of its, you know, heads of state gets assassinated. Uh, and you know what should have been a small, very very small localized conflict in southern Austria, Hungary, and Serbia mm-hmm. um, through a web of alliances which we've all probably boringly learned back in high school. And, you know, what what made it so boring then is what makes it so fascinating to me now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I could just go back to my high school, Mike Salvucci, and, and slap him and be like, this is awesome stuff. <laughs> Listen to Mr. Baker. <laughs> um, but... Uh, this web of alliances that would draw in nation after nation after nation. And it was this domino effect of, right. okay, we have to go into Serbia and we know the Russians are going to come in. And then we're going to, we literally probably phone France and ask France, are you really going to honor that pact you had with Russia? Because our, 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 our problem is with them, not you. And France is like, well, no, if you attack Russia, we're going to have to attack you. And uh, so what did Germany do? They attacked France first because they felt that uh, Russia is always slow to mobilize, which is historically very true. Um, And then when they went into France, England comes in because they have to go through Belgium. And I mean, I'm sure our listeners know this stuff. If you don't, I would uh, I would suggest going to listen to Dan Carlin's podcast on World War One. I know I'm kind of like the Carlin fanboy over here but uh, right right um, Hardcore it's history good, is good stuff yeah it's, it's, it's good stuff it's, good, it's good, stuff. good stuff it's a little dramatic um and but you need you know, that to stay if, awake you know if, <laughs> if you yeah. want pure fact i would listen to it with a grain of salt because some of it is a little over dramatized however he does a great job of explaining that web of alliances and and how those dominoes fall one after another and i can draw inferences to what we have today in our world and and NATO, which is in itself a web of alliances. I mean, if someone attacks a NATO nation, we have to go and attack that attacker, no matter how justified that attack on that nation might have been. It could have been a perfectly justified attack. Maybe not to our mind, right? But maybe to someone else's. And we have to honor our treaty, I guess. <laughs> I mean, if, if, it's, if it's me, I'm saying I'm not going to honor the treaty. I don't, I don't need to. We're the United States. We don't need to. Um, but that worries me a little bit that something could happen in the Ukraine specifically right now, Mm -hmm. um, where we get dragged into a world conflict over Ukraine. And I'm sorry, I'm sure the, the, I'm sure Ukrainians are fantastic people. Oh yeah. Um, is it worth the United States going to war over, um, over, over a geography fight? You know, you said something really interesting pre-show, Michael, about World War One, where you said, you know, if we just let all these alliances go, 
if we just <laughs> let them go down there you know take over serbia whatever bring them into this you know bizarre uh, amalgamation of nationalities that was austria hungary uh and just let it be over with let them protect their interests what yeah, How Germany and Austria Hungary's goal wasn't any there was no nefarious goal there. Right. I mean, no, they, you're they right. Didn't... They had a they had a world leader assassinated by a terrorist group that was being harbored by uh, you know, or they at least they thought harbored by this government. Right? Um but in, in any event, I mean, like you said, it, how many lives would have been saved if you just let them duke it out? keep the conflict local don't let it become don't let it escalate into yeah. a, a global conflict uh, and and you gotta wonder if you if you go back and you tell um you know and, and you tell the leaders of these countries what would what 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 you know what would have been or what's coming right if you mm-hmm. if you go and tell um you know kaiser was it kaiser wilhelm mm-hmm. if you go and tell the leaders of these countries the amount of human deaths that would come from being dragged into a war that they really had no stake in. I mean, England <laughs> by itself on an island um, had no had no reason to be in this war other than that the Germans went through Belgium to get to France. And because they did that, England's in the war. That's crazy. Well, because the French... Navy, <laughs> right, helps protect British interests in the Mediterranean. So, right. I mean, it's you have to follow these chains yeah. of events, these chains of reasoning that are seemingly unrelated. Like, what does British trade <laughs> in the Mediterranean have to do with Arch- Archduke Franz Ferdinand? Yeah. Well, right. quite a lot, actually, but you have to wait until all the lines are drawn to see it. And so you have, you have 16, 17-year-old boys going off to die over this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's crazy. That is crazy. Um, and you can contrast that with an objectively evil war or an objectively evil uh, purpose mm-hmm. of war, which would be the next world war just right. a couple decades later, yeah. um, where you have a group of people who are, their mission is to kill, to enslave, to exterminate. Um, it's a very different war. And so the, the, the warning signs for that type of war are different. I don't. I don't think we. I don't think we have that type of war brewing. I mean, there's no. But besides the terrorism aspect of right of globalism today, that kind of thing really isn't going on. That's not to say that certain conflicts, especially in uh, like Somalia in the '90s, um, mm-hmm. you had a lot of you, you had small genocides. Absolutely, Balkans. Um, Yes, but not to this scale, right? I mean, we're talking about global right. conflict. How does that happen? Systematic. Um, yeah. So this is, but this is one of the warning signs, right? Would be a group of people um, invading other territories for the sake of um, uh, gaining land, gaining power. Um, that wasn't what we were depriving it of others or exterminating them based on right ethnicity, the genocide scenario. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um. Do we see this brewing today? I mean, do we see any of these happening right now? I mean, I think we, I think we have an arms race. We do, we do on on drone technology, on the 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 light footprint warfare of the future. Yes, I think there is there is an arms race. I think there are alliance problems. 
I, you know, great example. We're bombing Yemen right now. Yeah, yeah. How we did we end up in that like mess? yesterday? Right. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've we've managed to stay out of this this complete mess between these rebels and Saudi Arabia, and it's an absolute mess. I think they they bombed a wake last week or the week before Oof. last. <laughs> Some 125 or so innocent people killed at a funeral for a head of state. Um. Right. It's madness. And you had at the time the Obama administration kind of walking it back a little and saying, hey, you know, maybe we're not going to supply bombs to Saudi Arabia anymore if this is how they're going to fight their war. Fast forward a week later and we're blowing up rebel radar stations along. The- yeah. How? How? How does that happen? How do yeah. you get from one point to the other? And it's through the web of alliances. Right. Um you know, these people perceive us to be a threat because we're in bed with the Saudis, have been for a century. And they know that the bombs that are being dropped on them aren't coming from Saudi Arabia. So what do you do? You see an American naval vessel. What do you, what do you have to lose? Take a shot at it, right? Um, and now we've been shot at. Now we have to protect ourselves. And of course, in, in the spirit of, of proportionate response, you know, we, with a very efficient strike, we destroy all their radar stations. Um, and now they're, you know, now good luck targeting us anywhere, right? Your radar stations are out. You know, you, th- you should have hit us the first time when you had the chance. Uh, and I, yeah, I don't want to be too hard on the U.S. I'm a proud American. I love our military might. I, 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 I love living under the blanket of comfort that is afforded to us by being able to very efficiently and effectively go out and destroy any enemy anywhere anytime but you have to look at this tangled mess of alliances and ask yourself at the end of the day what do we really have against the rebels in in yemen what 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 is our beef with them is there right. any and what the, do we no, really owe the saudis honestly what what do we owe these people is it worth it to be in bed with them because these it's these little and this is the theme i think of this show is that it's these little seemingly unrelated things that suddenly, the dominoes as you called them, Michael, the, the, the seemingly unrelated dominoes that once one topples, you see how they all connect. You see just how close all the dominoes really were to one another. You know, we bomb Yemen. Yemen is in bed with Iran. Iran goes to Russia. Russia's already upset with America for their involvement in NATO. Russia feels threatened on its, east, on its uh, western front. Russia, you know, somehow, you know, they end up all, you know, tied up with China. And now you've got uh, another new access global power that didn't seem possible today. This is all hypothetical, of course, but it's just this. That's how this happens. Right. Like one little spark and the whole powder keg goes up. Yeah. And and like I remember you talking about japan italy germany world war ii i mean those are kind of unlikely i mean prior to the 1930s those are unlikely friends i feel like um yeah strange bedfellows uh, <laughs> you know it's just you know it's just well, okay like wait, why you know and, and and you don't really realize it until it until it already happens until it's mm-hmm. too late until you're in a war a real war i mean not not this war on terror that's just amorphous and never ending that's not a war um i'm talking total war well I guess I'm not talking total war anymore because uh, total war is extinction now. Until until there are no more nuclear weapons, total war is extinction. Right. So I guess I mean, is 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 total war pre nuclear weapons 
possible now. So I guess what would it be like 95% war? I don't know. Um, you know, because total warfare is kind of invented by Napoleon um, mm-hmm. in the 1800s, where this is a new concept. This wasn't just a group of knights under, you know, some provincial control of a kingdom that's going to take over that group of knights and we're going to take their land and, um, you know, we get to have their money in their castle and hurrah. Mm-hmm. No, this is the entire population's focus is war. I think Napoleon was quoted as saying, yeah, you can't stop me. I spend 30,000 lives a month. Yep. As in, you know, like we, <laughs> we, we have so many people that we can, we can lose that many and it's nothing and it's nothing. Um, does that type of warfare exist anymore? And it's interesting because I find myself thinking the fact that our leaders are so poised and for the most part, for the past 40, 50 years have been so calm and collected that you could actually see calm and collected leaders fighting each other. I could, I could foresee this fighting each other and both having the restraint to keep the finger off the button, right? And not launch the nukes. We're going to have all the fighting we want, but we're not going to launch the nukes. We're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's easy to go down the road of, of nuclear warfare though, because it starts off with, you know, maybe shooting a few small ones out there, you know, we're just going to, we're going to, we're going to attack that fleet with a nuclear weapon, right? So it's only the strictly military, right? No civilians are dying because we're going to nuke a carrier group in the Pacific, a Chinese carrier group in the Pacific with a nuclear weapon. But what does that do to the environment? <laughs> and and oh, doesn't yeah. that spiral out of control, right? Now they're going to use some small nukes. And now we're, now we're getting into full nuclear warfare. So is conventional warfare even possible? I, I don't know. Well, I mean, we haven't seen it. Yeah, conventional warfare, you're right, has changed. It, it's changed in the nuclear age. And it's changing again, I think, with the... With, we're entering the yeah. era of, of full mechanism right we've yeah um it, it's like you know if you were to imagine some futuristic society where we just built robot armies you know which sounds ridiculous <laughs> but you know what what would geopolitics look like in that kind of climate where you can literally you know i'm i'm gonna let my nerd uh my nerd flag fly a little here there's a star trek the next generation <laughs> episode oh where uh captain picard comes across you know this alien planet and there's a global war going on in this planet and there's two sides and they slowly realize that they're not actually nuking each other, but the two societies have set up um, a computer that would, that would um, simulate a nuclear strike. And then it would randomly select members of the population numbers to which would be equivalent to that nuclear strikes death for termination and they would agree to this and these people would then be killed humanely right without pain um and and that was how they fought their wars right so it's uh it's fascinating <laughs> right so i don't know it's it's not that far off from what you're talking about in the sense that um you know we're getting to the point now where uh War means really bad things. Um, it always has, but it means possible extinction. And using drones, um, I, that's new. That's a new way to fight. I still don't know what a war between two major powers 
is going to look like without without nuclear weapons. I just don't. Um, like if the United States and Russia get into an actual war, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And what's it? What is the war over? I suppose too. I mean, is it? What What are the goals of of each side? Right, you always have to look at see. In the that's war. that's where I think I think you could speak to that mm-hmm. because for for as much as technology changes, you know, people really don't. I mean, the issues change from year to year, but I think part of why we agreed that this was a good show to do for this episode, and part of the reason why we gave it the title we did is that I think, Mike, you and I do think that even though the technologies change, and even though the issues change and the players might change, the warning signs kind of remain the same. And, you know, we've touched on lots of them. When you see an arms race, when you see a web of alliances, when you see the madman from the madman hypothesis. Sure, yeah, up the, I, I like that, the madman warning. Yeah, yeah the madman warning. Um, another one that we, we haven't even gotten to yet that we talked about pre-show, pre-show is uh, imbalances. Mm. Whenever you, the Weimar Germany scenario, yeah. right, where you have such economic punishment uh, placed on one player. I think you see it in Iran. I think it's why they get as violent as they they do in their speech. It's because you know they've wanted nuclear power in addition to nuclear weapons, which you know I agree they they shouldn't have, but they've wanted nuclear power for ages, and we're constantly there, not just denying it to them, but slapping them with punishing economic mm-hmm. sanctions. Same with uh, same with Russia. You know, a lot of people don't realize Russia at, at, at in 1991 when the USSR was 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 finally broken up right? Russia ended up losing 2 million square miles of land. Think about that. 2 million square miles were lost to that country. You know, it's like, it's like if you, what would you do if you woke up and you found out that the United States didn't own anything from the Rockies on anymore, right? As part of some peace deal yeah. with another country. How would wow. we handle that? That tremendous yeah. loss of land. Think about it. two million square miles. Okay, the European Union is one point seven million square miles. India is one point three million square miles. So this is like bigger than the EU, bigger than India. Russia gave up in size. And this All, is some wealthy. This is some wealthy land. Yeah, I mean, this, this is, is this is the world. This is oil rich territory yeah, too. Yeah, uh, this is yeah. This is like Poland and <laughs> you know uh, Eastern Germany. Right. This is lucrative, you know, prime real estate around the world. But uh, yeah, so that's a big loss. And it wasn't that long ago. 1991. Yeah. No, not all that long ago. Not all that Um, long ago. So this is like we may have forgotten already here in the United States. But I, I don't know that your typical Russian does. And more importantly, I don't think they forget that it wasn't just, you know, during the the fall of the USSR, that that land was was in dispute, right? That particular area, that Western Front, has been in dispute for centuries, and they're constantly trying to acquire it at this time or that time for the purposes of defense against hostile powers in Europe, for the purposes of trade, whether they're trying to secure the the sides of the the Baltic Sea or whether they're trying to get down into the closer to the Mediterranean or closer to the Persian Gulf. There's Russian interests there that, that have been around for a long time. And, you know, when you have an imbalance like that, 
a loss of of square footage i guess you could say <laughs> yeah uh, not to mention the punishing economic sanctions that come whenever they go into you know georgia whenever they go into crimea whenever they make a move you know a situation like we said kind of like the beginning of world war one that maybe would have best just been left you know alone and see how it mm. plays out right now you've got global alliances that are ready to step up and challenge russia every time they move in the form of the un or nato or just the united states picking up a coalition and coming sure. against them right these are real threats and when you have the european union talking about building an army and having oh, it boy. be at the ready for brussels to say yep go in there and and do what you got to do this is threatening stuff to the russians right you need to think about this you just need to think about how threatening this really sounds and suddenly you know while may, you know i'm not going to endorse what they're doing but it starts to make more sense right it starts yeah. to sound less like oh vladimir putin just wants to flex his muscles and, and pick up crimea no that might be part of it but it, it's certainly not all of it no i mean they're they're threatened they feel mm -hmm. threatened and who wouldn't um and I think that's kind of like the big takeaway here is trying to eh, trying to see the world as they see it, um, because how else are you going to communicate with them if you don't mm -hmm. if you don't get it, right? If you don't if you don't understand this, um, then what business do you have talking to them about it? Because true, um, at the end of the day, the United States has been um, afforded the wonderful. I guess, you know, just per chance, uh, the wonderful um, fact that we have two friendly nations mm -hmm. bordering us, one above and one below. And on the other two sides of us are giant oceans. <laughs> yeah. And we have the world's greatest Navy, the world's greatest Air Force. Right. Um, so good luck getting to us. <laughs> yeah. It's just not going to happen. So that's how we see the world. Right. And mm -hmm. And when a country like Russia parks missiles in Cuba... We feel very, very, very threatened by that. Sure. But we don't understand how they feel threatened by our missiles in Turkey. That's the problem, mm -hmm. right? Because we, we, have, we have to understand that. <laughs> um, and I don't think any of our leaders do now. I don't think, I don't think Obama really gets it. I don't think uh, Hillary Clinton really gets it. I don't think Donald Trump gets it. No. Um, <laughs> he nope. definitely doesn't get it. Uh, you don't you don't understand that when you step up and say, "Hey, Russia, can you help us find Hillary Clinton's emails?" Like even as a joke, like you don't yeah, get it. You, you don't, don't understand geopolitical conversation if you say something like that. No, you, you, yeah. you don't get it. Um, and you're right, Hillary Clinton, more of the same kind of Obama hawkishness. Yeah, you know that 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 new style of warfare, that new style of interventionalism which is kind of issue specific, doesn't take into account the big picture or, you know, or the concept of a dialogue with another great power. You know, Kennedy got it. JFK yeah. got it. You want to talk about, oh, you want to talk about great moments in American history, exceptional moments in American leadership. Talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis because JFK managed to Bring us back from the brink. I, I don't think this could be stated enough. This is another thing that I was falling asleep during high school class when we were talking about I wish I could go back and <laughs> slap myself and say, you know, Chris Lund, listen to Dr. Zink. You know, you, you need to 
understand that, you know, Russia feels threatened the same way we feel threatened. And you had a great point pre-show, Mike, where you said JFK offered to pull, you know, our nukes back from Turkey, which we were planning on doing anyway, to kind of appease the Soviets and get them to remove the missiles, not just not use the missiles, right? They took them out of Cuba. They got them out of there. Uh, And not a shot was fired and not a life was lost. That is a tremendous win. And he did it by having the geopolitical acumen to understand things like that. Like you said, Michael, proximity. He understood it. He understood that they didn't like having missiles in Turkey because we don't like having missiles in Cuba. But then again, you know, I think a Kennedy is a dove. I don't think a Kennedy is a real hawk. I, I don't I don't know that Kenny Kennedy really enjoyed the idea of, of just going and intervening to get ahead of a problem. I, I think he was a last resort yeah, I think I think his brother did. Mm-hmm. I think I think Bobby is much more of a hawk, um, and I think uh, Vietnam could be attributed partially to him and his mm-hmm. influence. However, I think you're right. I think JFK um, was much more of a dove, and and it, and it's kind of what what most people have kind of come to think of as Democrats. Um, that party is kind of the party of. Uh, um, of that kind of mindset, but I don't think it is anymore. I, I don't no. see any, I, I really don't see any real difference between um, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush. I mean, there are, of course there are differences, but as far as exerting American um, foreign uh, power, mm-hmm. uh, they do it in different ways. Sure. But they still do it. Um, and that and that leaves uh, you, you ask the question: are, are there any doves around anymore? Yeah, <laughs> where, where have all the where doves have all gone? The doves gone. That's usually a staple in American politics, right? You got someone out there talking about someone. how we can't be going to war. Yeah, that's right. usually that's usually one side's argument. We don't have that anymore. We don't have it. Yeah. No. Now, now you've got Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in a presidential debate about who's got the stamina to fight the war longer. That's right. right. What? Right. <laughs> what is this? What are you talking about? And, you know, your fiscal conservatives gone. That was it. That was the modern dove, I think. That libertarian, mm. pseudo fiscal yeah. conservative, your Rand, your Rand Paul, your Ron Paul, your Gary Johnson, those kind of guys who say, you know, war is expensive and it ends in blowback. And do we really need the trouble? Or, or like Ron Paul used to say all the time, you know, we have a, a you know. I love Rod Paul, but his his voice was just it, he, a lot of it was lost. You know, it looked like this little feeble little old man, you know, making these fake points. The difference between military spending and defense spending. Just because you spend mili- spend a billion dollars on an embassy in Baghdad, bigger than the than the Vatican, you consider that defense spending. I consider that waste. So, but he had a point, right? Is that this stuff's expensive, and when you build a million-dollar embassy in Baghdad, all you really do is tick off yeah. the natives even more, you know? You, so, but those and, people are gone. They lost in the in the Republican primary. They lost big with Rand Paul. He was one of the first ones out, which I was sorry to see him go because yeah, where's his voice he, of reasoning? You I got think Gary he brings Johnson, a good voice to the kill. He brings a good voice to the table. Yeah. Um, but on the contrast, the the Dove side, or I guess not on the contrast, on the, the similarly, um, on on the Democrat side, the Dove, Bernie Sanders, yeah. um, was a Dove for the same reason, though. We are spending two hundred and seventy billion dollars a year on the military. 
But we don't have a major enemy. I know it hurts your feelings. I know you're upset about it. I know you're hoping and praying that maybe we'll have another war. Maybe somebody will rise up. But it ain't happening. The Soviet Union doesn't exist. The Warsaw Pact is through. Who are you worried about? Iraq? Panama? Who are you worried about? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, his his dovishness wasn't because of uh, some sort of moral opposition to warfare, although I'm sure that it was I'm implied. sure that exists in him. He's yeah, a, he's, right. a, he's a he's a he's a seems like a very nice man. Yeah. Um, he does. But 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 he but he he couches his argument and this might say something more about the American public than the candidates. Right. I think they do this on purpose. Sure. And that he couches the argument in the physical conservative. Um, that resonates know, with more people. I think, I it think does, more people right? understand that because, you know, he could go about like, he's not Jill Stein, right? Jill Stein no. goes out there and talks about complete nuclear nonproliferation. Yes. Okay? Right. It's not just enough, you know, to stop a new bomb from being built in Iran. There are existing bombs already. We know that Israel has bombs, Pakistan has bombs, India has, has bombs as well further east. But we can fix that, and I would say this should be the first step towards a nuclear-free world. Uh, it's absolutely unjust and terrible that Barack Obama wants to spend a trillion dollars now on a whole new nuclear arms race. This makes us very endangered. Hillary Clinton wants to start an air war with Russia over Syria. We don't need that, and we don't need the nuclear weapons. We can move forward on a path towards peace, and we can do it now. No more. We're going to get rid of all of them. Right. Wi-Fi and, and, is causing cancer in our kids' right, schools. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it's up there on that level of crazy. Like, we people yeah. hear that and they go no no like it great if you could get the rest of the world to give up their nukes i'm all for that but we're not giving but we're up not ours. Doing that's that's yep. that's that's insanity that's when all the crazies are going to come out of the woodwork and then we won't have a defense anymore so but it bernie didn't take that angle bernie i think had had the the understanding that in order to get people on board you need to go that fiscal conservative route or even the geopolitical blowback route I mean, not geopolitical, I should say, but the, the political yeah, the, understanding of blowback. Yep, the blowback, yep, the right. blowback route, sure. You know. When you are an immensely powerful nation like the United States, we have the capacity to overthrow governments and dictators. Nothing new about that. We can do that. But what our job is, is to be thinking about what happens the day after you overthrow a dictator. What does that mean for that region? What does it mean for the United States? And that's a, because it resonates with so many people right now, it becomes a populist talking point. Mm-hmm. And so you see Trump jumping on that bandwagon. This is why I hate covering Trump. Okay, I will be so glad when he's just out of the out of the field, not because of any partisan thing, but because he's a little bit of everything. You can't you can't have a meaningful conversation about no, Donald Trump because in one of the same sentence, he'll say that we caused 9-11 from our intervention, but we need to go and intervene some more. But, you know, we need to be strong, but war's too expensive. I was an opponent of the Iraq war from the beginning. Are you for invading Iraq? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, I wish it was, I, I wish the first time it was done correctly. I have been just as clear in saying what a catastrophic mistake Hillary Clinton and President Obama made with the reckless way in which they pulled out. 
How do they get out? You know how they get out? They get out. That's how they get out. Declare victory and leave. Libya was stable. And President Obama and Hillary Clinton should have never attempted to build a democracy in Libya. Gaddafi in Libya is killing thousands of people. Nobody knows how bad it is. We should go in. We should stop this guy, which would be very easy and very quick. You know, Pickett is all over. Everything is all, all over. over the place. And, you know. But who, who, who is the last dove? I mean, who is the last dove president? Uh, I'm trying to think. I say Kennedy. I, I really yeah. don't think since then. I mean, after that, you start to get the modern liberal hawk. I think Johnson was the first one. I think Johnson yeah. was the first modern liberal hawk who was like, eh, well, but we need to be intervening. Like, but right. we need to. We just need to as a matter of course. We need to. Right. And then, yeah, every, I mean, Jimmy Carter, maybe. Yeah, that, but almost that, has just. But he he almost did it just because he was a dove just by by mistake. Like he just didn't do much of anything. I feel like you know. Like he was uh, just... I, uh, I don't know that that's fair. I think he had ethical reasons for what he was doing. Okay. It's just that well, I, we can disagree there. That's fine. <laughs> that makes for a better show. <laughs> it does indeed. It does. But I mean, there, he was an altruist, right? That that's what Carter was. He was he was an altruist. The problem right. was he didn't know how to balance. I think I don't think he knew how to balance his altruism with utilitarianism right he didn't understand when you needed to act uh the iranian hostage crisis comes to mind yeah right woof. where he's like you yeah woof. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was a tough one pal <laughs> um yeah i mean jfk um the last liberal dove really strong effective liberal dove right um but We'll see. You know, I, I hope they come back. I hope the dove is, is just migratory. Migratory. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I hope they're well, just, think, you know, they've they've just gone down to warmer waters and they'll they'll come back to our political climate one I mean, day. I, I think I think we forget too how brutal total war is. I mean, we mm-hmm. haven't been involved in something like that in um you know, seventy years. Sure. Uh, coming up coming up on eighty years. Um, where you, the entire goal of your society is war. Um, and I hope, I hope that, that people really haven't forgotten what that's like. And, and I think that's pro- probably part of the problem with drone warfare. Mm-hmm. And because eventually, eventually if you're going into war and you're going all out war, it's not just going to be drones that are getting oh, yeah. shot down, you know, um, it, they work great for the little, you know, a little proxy strike or a little, you know, I'm just going to go drone this camp Find a terrorist here, and kill them. You know, yeah. But yeah, find the terrorists and kill them, right? Mm-hmm. Those are, that's great drone, great, great drone job there. But yep. um, when you're fighting another nation state, those aren't going to cut it anymore. And and I, I really hope people don't forget how horrible, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't you and I don't know no, how don't, horrible know. Total no War idea. is and we read about it um, uh, you can watch videos on YouTube of um, sure. World War One battles World War Two battles um, you can go and watch this stuff um, but at the same time I feel like people are less informed about it unless uh, they, they don't understand even though they mm-hmm. have the ability to go look at the stuff firsthand or secondhand um, 
And that, that scares me a little bit. That worries me. That and, and now we're getting to the point now where our leaders or our, you know, Hillary and Trump are both old. <laughs> um, very old. They're both very old. Um, so they, they might still understand. Um, but the next group of people coming up in, in American and global, not just us, but in global leadership across the world, aren't going to, aren't going to know. They're not going to, they're not going to remember that. Yep. Um, and that's, that's, that's scary. So what's the lesson here? What's the takeaway? If we're going to sum up what we've been saying, empathy. Yeah. Right. Putting yourself into the mindset of the other person. Uh, and along with that, you know, where have all the doves gone? Bring back the doves because that's what <laughs> a good dove did well. Right, yeah, that's what Kennedy right. did well, and he did it well because he was a peacekeeper, and a true and, peacekeeper is going to understand that because part of keeping peace is keeping everyone's interests in check, right, and making sure everyone's taken care of. And I'm not, and, and when I say I want the doves back, that doesn't necessarily mean I want them in power or I want them always no. making all the decisions. Right. right, I want them back. I want them in the discussion. Because yeah. any sort of one-sided discussion, especially when it comes to war, is not good. Um, you need them. You need them to, to talk some sense every now and then. And just like you need the other side, you know, to should, should we have gone into 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 Europe earlier in the in the 40s, in the late 30s? Yeah, absolutely. We should have. Mm-hmm. And I think appeasement won the day there. And that was a mistake. Right. Um, and so just like you need the doves now. Maybe they've kind of gone missing. Maybe we needed a little bit more hawks uh, back then. So you need a balance. Right. Um, it's an excellent I don't think point. We, I don't think we have it. I don't think we have it right now. Um, and, you know, this show has been, this episode I think has been filled with us asking a lot of questions, probably asking more than answering them. And I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's good. I think that even makes our point a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we need to have, we need to be having discussions about this. We need to be able to um, understand, just come to the table and ask Russia, like, what's what's going on over here? Like, why why are you like this? I mean, not asking them, but even just having the ability to look through history and find out why. Because I think the answers are there if you look. It, yeah, but if, if you want to have an effective negotiation with someone, you got to know what they want and you got to mm-hmm. know why they want it. Right. And I, I, I'm worried, like you, Michael that decades and decades of American exceptionalism have made us deaf to the needs and wants of other countries and therefore dumb at the negotiating table. (laughs) Right? Thank you for listening to this episode of Over and Above. Be sure to check us out on the web at overandabovenews.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Media. Also, if you like what you heard, or if you disagree with it, write us a review on iTunes and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. We're on all the major platforms, including SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Mm-hmm.